So while I, I don't work on, say, international migration per se, I'm working on a group of people that could be defined as rural urban migrants who are then resettled into the suburb. So there's a lot of movement that's happening. And the way people come to terms with that movement is definitely a central theme of my talk. So in a sense, I look at the forced arrival city or the non-consensual arrival city to some extent because of resettlement. While the eyes of the world focused on the intermittent occupations of Cairo's Tahrir Square, in the three years since the Egyptian uprising of 2011, a different kind of movement has emerged at the city's periphery. On August 13, 2010, in February 2011, during the 18 days of Hosni Mubarak's fall, a group of 231 resettled slum dwellers, families, in the impoverished Dweka district in central Cairo, abandoned their 23-square-meter allocated homes to squat livable ones in Haram City, a budget-gated community marketed by developers and development practitioners alike as a new best-practice cooperative public-private partnership for low-income housing. Angered that publicly subsidized but privately controlled low-income housing is being sold to the middle classes, they joined families from all over Cairo to claim over 500 flats, bringing water, electricity, <coughs> and microbus stands transporting to the city center. The Egyptian army promptly intervened, and most squatters were evicted. The original Dweka 231 families, however, proved unique, managing to fight off all authorities. They live there to this day, a slow protest that, curiously, the squatters refuse to frame in terms of the revolution itself. The, this paper looks at the relationship between housing struggles and the language of rights from the perspective of this group of Cairo's urban poor. Grappling with this matter requires developing an understanding of how people discuss and counter the normative moral terms under the law of resettlement or eviction to the city periphery. Broadly, I'll look at gaps in understanding the urban poor's relationship to revolutionary language and interpretations of moral orders amidst resettlement through a tracing of the effective, discursive, and practical instrumentalization of rights discourse during the 2011-2013 revolutionary period. In the gated suburb, or for some, the non-consensual arrival city, the squatters' movement appeals to a moral order and their extraction from this order without consent to justify the occupation of other houses from an explicitly explicit position outside of the law. The attempt to recover rights will be traced through a chain in the squatters' self-theorization of their predicament as follows. First, a popular appeal to a lost common-sense moral economy and legitimizing illegal property seizure at the privatized Cairo periphery. Second, the emergence of a vernacular outlaw discourse in order to assert a pre-existing moral economy in a setting where it has been deemed immoral and illegal. And third, the framing of rights, metaphorically, as socially intact property that can be lost or taken, and therefore also brokered between by outlaws well suited to confront dominant legal systems. So I'm going to paint this triptych for you. Um, and it works in a chain of events that go through affect, discourse, and practice. It's three discrete ways of understanding resettlement. A cornerstone project of Hosni Mubarak's National Housing Initiative, Haram City, was one of the supposed million homes to be constructed between 2005 and 2010 to address Egypt's much-discussed housing crisis. Completed in 2007, Haram City is entirely owned and operated by Araskam Housing Communities, owned by Sami Sawiris, one of the three brothers in Egypt's richest billionaire family. On the premise of building a fully integrated, sustainable, low-income community, Araskam purchased 4.5 million square meters of land in the desert behind the pyramids of Giza at a heavily subsidized rate of one British pound per square meter. This is the commercial for the project. Araskam Housing Communities is 15% owned by U.S.-based Equity International, an investment vehicle for Chicago billionaire Sam Zell. As the largest private real estate owner in the U.S., it is one of the companies most closely linked to the predatory mortgages of the U.S. property bubble. Since selling the majority of U.S. real estate in 2007, six months before the crash, 
Zell promptly shifted focus to housing in emerging markets, prompted by a UNDP Building Inclusive Markets initiative as a best-practice public-private partnership, and by the World Bank as part of its new low-income affordable mortgage drive, Haram City copies are set to open in Morocco, Romania, and Ethiopia under the UN rubric of the Human Right to Adequate Housing. In reality, with houses priced between 140,000 and 200,000 Egyptian pounds, so 14,000 to 20,000 British pounds, the scheme is entirely out of the reach of the lower two or three quintiles of the Egyptian demographic, with a customer base that can be more accurately described as aspirational middle class. Dweka is popularly understood by Kyrenes as a quintessential case of slum crisis, a globally mediatized and circulated depiction of urban plight produced by the Egyptian government, Amnesty International, and various urban development organizations for the consumption of electorates and donors to advance a range of anti-poverty agendas and grand urban revitalization schemes. In 2007, Dweka suffered a catastrophic rock slide that killed more than uh, 200 people and displaced several thousands. To this day, images of the crumbling site are on the front pages and front lines of designating entire swaths of informal Cairo as unsafe <coughs> areas. Under Mohammed Abdel Azim of the Egyptian Center for Civil and Legisl Legislative Reform, it has been quite clearly demonstrated how these unsafe areas correspond remarkably with Cairo 2050 Master Plan's kind of grand boulevards and master plan schemes. So there's a, a distinct tracing of where these unsafe areas that Dweka kind of provoked the language of as being where these ridiculous uh, house minion boulevards with autumn foliage that you'd never find in Cairo should be placed. Um, the Dweka rock slide, on the other hand, occurred just a few months before Harm City's construction. Publicity and outrage around the incident, coinciding with the electoral populism of Mubarak's Million Home Initiative, compelled now indicting housing minister Ahmed al-Maghrebi to convince Arascom to take, on, to take some families on board. This circumstantial compromise resulted in resettling families of an average size of between 5 and 10 in tiny 23 square meter flats. Two years later, during the Mubarak's overthrow, Dweka residents, who the government had deemed undeserving for resettlement, led the squatter invasion. Currently, Haram City contains about 30,000 inhabitants, approximately 6,000 of which are a combination of resettled slum dweller, resettled turned squatter, and just squatter, as well as about 1,000 Syrian refugees. The effort to stretch the definition of low income by Zell and Sawiris to basically account for a market more accurately described as budget-gated lifestyle while benefiting from World Bank boosterism has been turned inside out. It is well documented that the most damaging aspects of slum eviction and resettlement, generally to the urban periphery, is loss of livelihoods associated with social relations embedded in high proximity and the customs and norms of tenure as a logic of informality. So it, it, it is viscerally acknowledged irony by the squatters themselves that the 10 Egyptian pounds a day used to take three microbuses back and forth to work or school is basically more than the cost of their rent back home. So they pay more just to get to work than they actually previously paid for rent. Minus three good hours of working time due to Cairo's notoriously bad traffic. Some have managed to find work gardening for the wealthy residents or constructing ornate walls for the overtly private domains. A few have found positions as security guards. Inevitably, though, an entire economy, and thus also urban form, has begun to flourish within the occupied quarter. Houses are dismantled and reassembled. Walls are knocked down between flats. Picket fence front lawns are walled in and replaced with commercial spaces. Selling bread or clothing or even containing a small gym. Teetering pigeon coops jut from many roofs. Goats and cows roam in certain laws that operate as butcheries with the freshest meat for miles. Utilities infrastructure is hijacked and rewired. And a proper popular market made of tin and repurposed timber has been constructed in what was planned to be a park. Across town, this area has acquired the name Little Dweka, as if some kind of ethnic enclave. Crossing Road 232, that delineates Little Dweka from the rest, behind that bush, um, reveals the true statutory and architectural difference as one walks by identical houses, but in their original form, with neat and ornate walls. 
and elaborate landscaping. The livelihood imperative for Lidlwicka to shift, intertwine, and expand as it attempts to invent an economy for itself has been labeled by many homeowners as the slumification of a gated community. Here are some, here's a palace, basically, being built in the luxury side, and here's some kids selling cotton candy in, in the kind of luxury side. The Harm City Activist Association, a group of homeowners that meets bi-monthly to discuss the matter, runs several Facebook groups deriding and lamenting the gaze of Egyptian chaos, al-Zahma Masriya, uh, as their very raison d'être for fleeing to the desert. So there's always, always this refrain of the poor as donkeys, continuous uh, imagery of, the, of donkeys and riding donkeys. In Harm City, the figurative action of squatting, occupying a house that legally is not yours, is lived through a more habitual and literal squatting. On the curb, in front of a row of other occupied houses, people just sit, drinking tea, beer, smoking cigarettes and hashish, cooking meals and discussing the course of action for the community to take. Three years away from Dweka, most men are only able to find three to four days of work a week, <coughs> earning between 10 and 15 British pounds per week. The majority of time is spent just talking and waiting it out slowly on the pavement. Amidst such a hostile setting, how have the Dweka squatters not been evicted? On the surface, the threat of physical force and the public relations embarrassment that violence would cause for a company trying to sell middle-class family community sustains the squatters. As Karim, a 30-year-old father of three, cement mason by profession and a central figure in Dwicka's social action, notes, there is a kind of detente-like situation. Quote, if the government orders us to leave, we'll get gas canisters and blow everything up. Um, here he describes how they defended the houses when they first squatted them, injuring 200 workers from the company's army. In this passage, a focus on rights language, rights-based language emerges through a threat of violent self-defense. In order to properly frame the moral dilemma faced by the Dweka squatters and how this rights-based language is understood and applied, a complex array of accusations must be clarified. Though illegal activity is rampant across the class divide, in fact, it is, it is basically more frequent in the upscale area with many houses run as brothels or even weapons depots, they live a kind of double-edged life. So accusations of deviance within the new community, however, fall most frequently on Dweka. Though their illegal activity is explicit, taking homes out in the open, the balancing act of perceived legitimacy means that more underground forms of income generation are, in fact, rarely practiced. As the residents of Harm City, in most direct violation of the norms set out by the management company, they live a dual-edged moral dilemma. While they steal houses out in the open, they unashamedly consider it right to do so and act consistently. The first reaction a Harm City squatter would generally give when asked about the experience of resettlement invariably involves the evocation of imagery of being lost, subconscious, dead, or comatose. The squatters call Harm City El Torab, the tomb, Medina al makabr cemetery city, or Haram, Harami city, thief city, in which residents are, quote, lost and subconscious, daya, choking or suffocating, hanaka, or everything, where everything is like a counterfeit or illusion, zeilzift, and they, quote, just sit or squat over time. Perceptions of neglect are driven by unemployment, in this case, inextricable from distance. The sense of inability to fulfill a gendered family role as provider, and the friction of long idle hours struggling to demonstrate remedial action to the community. Abu Hosni describes the state as, quote, everything the same every day, and Ahmed as, quote, a place where you forget the day of the week. In depicting the passage of time, a rupture in the spatial relationship between work and home is a central theme. In contrast to detailed studies on the politics of waiting or doing nothing, Craig Jeffrey, Paul Corgan, the effective quality of the squatter's idleness is not passive. It is not attributable to systematic unemployment, bureaucratic indiscretion, or global economic tides. Here, one's lack of productivity takes the form of a direct grievance over how they perceive the city ought to be. The implications and intertwining of home and work go deeper than income and support networks and refer to perceptions of a specific moral shift over distance. 
the suburb as territory for corporate surplus generation and mysterious state practices overwhelmingly contextualizes their unemployment. Squatters explicitly understand Haram City as a gated community, or in Egypt, as a compound. Compound is the term for gated community in Cairo. As they see it, the compound is a middle and upper class space, built privately outside of legal policing and therefore moral expectations of standard Egyptian urbanity. In this view, the law or ownership rules of compounds are suspect for protecting otherwise socially unacceptable behaviors through a veil of privacy behind the high walls of the standalone villa as class privilege, while prohibiting the improvisational livelihood patterns that are required for making life in the normal city. The rules of the compound block what they see as reasonable economic violations of the law publicly in order to permit social violations of the law privately. Abu Hosni describes this jarring moral chasm as such. Here, it's a, com- it's a company that made the city. This city belongs to a single man, Sawiris. But over there in Cairo, it belongs to everyone. This is your house, and this is mine, and everyone has his place. It's totally different. The squatters see the single-owner city as predicated on unreasonable surface profit extraction against an understanding of fair transaction, everyday city life, that comes with a harmony between work and residence. Ahmed describes the harmony of labor and leisure in the city as, quote, thinking by the profession, end quote. Where, where, sorry, where labor frames one's open relationship to normative expectations of a place and situation. Ahmed and his fellow squatters systematically identify hypocrisy in the financial and narrative history of Harm City on these terms. Consistently, masons in the community would take me to photograph cracks in load-bearing walls, stating, as Kareem once did, with deliberate, literal, metaphorical, literal and metaphorical double emphasis, quote, look, the most important thing in any house is the foundation, end quote. As builder squatters, they mobilize a labor knowledge of materials and construction methods to bolster accusations, such as the stated dimension of their original resettled homes, presenting them as, quote, sardine cans in violation of basic living standards. As Cream once noted, the resettlement houses, quote, the resettlement houses were 38 meters on the document. We came here and it was 24 meters. There was no point. It's like one room. You sleep, eat, and shit all in one place. The sharpest accusations of hypocrisy involve the government's valuation and sale of land to Oraskom. It is here that an explicit sense of excessive surplus extraction emerges, as well as a moral position, a case for how the city ought to be explicitly. Abu Hosni compares Araskam's surplus generation over state land in terms of his own trade as a cobbler. I sell you this for ten francs, but I consume four francs in sewing and weaving. Then Then I should sell it only for six. Don't profit off me. I'm the origin of this country. If you are selling this house for a hundred thousand, then it should be fifty for us. Because you built it on, on my land, and you got it for 50 piastres. Similarly, asserting that houses are unsold, Abu Hosni and Karim appeal to the notion that property is activated through use. Let's say I'm a car salesman, and I have 500 cars on display. Do they have owners? Not yet. Then there aren't any people yet. We are those people. We are the ones that occupy them, really. Look around you. Every house is empty. And then Karim says, It's like you bought multiple sunglasses. You bought them all to wear or to sell. By linking the mass construction of homes to a car lot or to a sunglasses vendor, while reminding us that these homes were built on undervalued state land in the name of those most in need of housing, the squatters regularly distinguish between property that is owned to sell and property that is owned to use. In doing so, they reject Araskom and the law support for what Joseph Singer terms, quote, the ownership model of property. If a standard anthropological definition of property is a network of social relations that governs the conduct of people with respect to the use and definition of things, and the ownership model reflects an understanding of private property where rights to exchange, use, prohibit use, or have property removed without consent to determine the vectors in a network of social relations are absolute. 
It also assumes that there are only two classes of ownership, public, by an organized government, and private. The squatter's distinction between ownership for use and ownership for sale, as, a common, sense in, as common sense and based in lived market practices, reveals a more varied relationship with property. In Egypt, with only 10% of real property registered in 2006, low expectations over the protection of the single ownership model might be expected. Yet, the overwhelming stock of informal construction and occupation involves illegal subdivision, construction without permission, and violation of land use ordinances. Little de Wicca does not violate the Urban Planning Land Act, the Building Code, or the Status Law regarding subdivisions of construction <coughs> or regarding land use. The invasion and occupation of pre-existing vacant homes is nearly unprecedented in Egypt, especially in the context of a fully privatized enclave. So, to this day, all charges brought upon the squatters have been presented as breaking an entry, the destruction of private property, namely doors and windows, and general species accusations of criminal activity, never mentioning the illegal occupation of lands and homes. As legal geographer Nicholas Blomley points out, the ownership model is immediately consequential as a uniform moral force that essentializes private property and reproduces a wider tendency to view binary legal orderings as, quote, pre-political, obvious, and unproblematic. By comparing a vast expanse of vacant houses built in the name of affordability to property held for profit rather than use, critical understanding of rights with a range of ownership types is, is deployed. The squatters unsettle the moral assumptions behind single ownership by emphasizing an alternative <coughs> labor theory of property predicated on continuing active use, similar to that deployed by squatter advocacy groups in the global north. Talk of exploitative land transaction is explicitly framed in terms of, quote, greed that has filled them, and the indebtedness of both businessmen and politicians, as well as the surplus that should be used according to local expectations of exchange. Harm City is a place where, quote, everything is grabbed from the top by the underhand. Speaking of Oroscombe's owner, Sawiris, Summer notes, quote, There are people for whom even a million pounds isn't worth anything to them. He may spend a million on breakfast. Then, speaking of redistributing Sawiris' income, basically calling for a, a universal basic income, uh, he says, quote, In our opinion, are a thousand of his a thousand of his? You would see how much, people, how much the people would make for themselves in a year. The essential thing is that you bring those in the lower class near to the middle, just a bit nearer not leaving them underlying lying beneath zero. This should give you a monthly salary that helps you get to sufficiency outside of your normal job. Conversely, Dweka's property is seen as earned and of directly traceable origin. When deliberating over the possibility of losing furniture during a protest in front of the Cairo governorate, Summer translates the sole material possessions of the squatters into the fruits of one's physical labor. You are concerned about some wood that's in those houses? Who brought you this wood? Is it your hard work, or did someone lend it to you? Abu Hosni replies, our muscles. Summer, then to hell with the wood. When I artfully take my right, I'll replace it, but never be afraid over a bed or a closet or a blanket. By speculating on how the immense wealth of certain individuals might better serve a larger community in light of their homelessness and Sawiris' profiteering, the squatters challenge the way the law and the ownership model effectively excludes notions of property from political questions of distribution. Indeed, Marx himself, when commenting on wood, namely legislation against its theft, notes that for a forest worker, quote, only the sensuously perceptible aspect of the crime affects him, unquote, rather than an attack on wood as a material object itself. The criminal nature of the act, of the act attacks, quote, wood as part of a state system and an attack on the right to property as such, the realization of a wrongful frame of mind, unquote. The emphasis on wood acquired through muscles justifies the squatter's disposal of it as they will, and the ability to replace it when they, quote, artfully take their right. This reflects Marx's wrongful frame of mind, the protection of property outside of questions of use and distribution, to be corrected. What underpins this faith in legitimacy to take, always explicitly to take rights, 
is a foundational belief in what an economy ought to be, of a moral economy, rooted in fair exchange as it happens in the cities day to day. It is directly in this sense that E.P. Thompson coined the term moral economy as, quote, an ideal model or ideology which assigns economic roles and which endorses customary practices in alternative economics in a particular balance of class and social forces. His emphasis is on how 18th century English crowds react to laissez-faire deregulation of the grain economy, resulting in price hikes and perceptions of profiteering, and the pattern of social protest which derives from a, cons- from a consensus understanding of the economy in times of dearth. Through a description of the understanding of the market, literally as a traditional space of transaction, Thompson reconstructs paternalist food marketing and protective institutional practices from which direct action regularly emerged in the form of forced bargaining, or consumers demanding a fair price at the threat of theft. In the case of the Dweka squatters, there is a distinct sense that the new drive to create a public-private, partnership, public-private market for affordable housing is linked to the exigencies of dirt, homelessness rather than Thompson's famine, predicated on a distinction between commodity for profit and for use, and clashes in the expected functioning of markets as they are understood literally on the ground. The occupation of pre-built homes as direct action towards redistribution is legitimized by narrating the foundationless alliance between the law and business's profiteering and on demonstrating how ownership mechanisms ought to be. In this sense, Thompson's original notion remains relevant, albeit in a dramatically different context, namely post-Sadat-era structural adjustment policies and the privatization of low-income housing, as well as the privatization of, of state emergency practices, so the resettlement of people who were in a natural disaster. Thompson even suggests a geographical dimension to the disjuncture between the moral and the economy by noting how the proliferation of dispersed manufacturing districts engendered reflexive awareness of grievances. Uh, peasants being removed from their hometown engendered a kind of awareness of their plight. And this resonates strongly with the comatose and subconscious sensations of the Dweka squatters being placed in the tomb city, taking rights. So, in a 1991 revisitation of his 1973 uh, moral economy thesis, E.P. Thompson concludes by observing that a common misunderstanding involves whether the English crowds of food writers frame their struggle in explicitly in terms of clearly defined rights. He notes that the language of obligations and rights is mostly a product of contemporary interpretation, and that while the, quote, theater of confrontation was manifested in a rhetoric of threat, including murder and arson, the essential premise for discontent was framed in, quote, plebeian discourses of love and charity between human and times, humans in times of need. Referring to the logic underpinning redistributive claims, he calls for, quote, comparative inquiry into what the moral is to help us understand its meanings. A striking aspect of Dweka's grievances over profiteering individuals and the complicity of the state is that not only are Thompson's ob- observations of a rhetoric of threat vividly present, but they are almost always expressed in explicit reference to right. Importantly, reference to rights is framed materially and always in terms of taking or losing rights, as if a material artifact stolen by authorities. Repeatedly, squatters make reference to a natural right beyond that sanctioned by the state and even beyond that mandated by, by religion. The language of rights as things, as things taken from the squatters that need to be taken back stands in for housing in this case. So here Abu Hosni says, Since you have a right, you must take it. Will we be silent? We won't shut up. If you try to twist my arm out of here, I'll take your eyes out and bring them with me. This is mine, by principle, by right, and by God's law, and not only God's. You demolish my home. Should I sleep in the street? No, sir, we are not renters. We are owners of property. We are owners of rights. Then, is what you are doing here related to social justice? Karim, yes, and everyone should do the same. Everyone has a right and should do it this way. Just take it. 
If my right is with my friend, I can leave it. But with the state, I can't leave it. If your rights are with the state, you should go and take it. Both statements observe that rights are something one owns, and it can shift around. If ownership is traditionally understood in legal and anthropological terms as a bundle of rights, then here the relationship seems reversed. Rights stand in for a bundle of essential properties, losing their salience as abstract and, ap and actionable civic obligations. The notion that rights can be materially lost and so that they must be taken by force, like property, is a central component of numerous contemporary inner-city youth proverbs in Cairo. One that, frequently, one that is frequently repeated is, in the house that is without a saya, rights remain subconscious or lost. Al-bayt ilim fi saya, daya. Finding the term saya in the words of the squatters themselves is complicated with multiple context-specific meanings. Traditionally, the term has, has highly negative connotations most literally meaning bum, vagabond, or tramp, and strongly implying a looseness of, of morals derived from geographic rootlessness. It is most generally used to refer to young men, and the, and the above 40 generation might use it interchangeably with the term thug, baltagi. So, as, for example, a professor of urban planning at the University of Alexandria said, quote, the schemer, the corruptible, the cunning, and the devious that has become the new Egyptian national norm. Obviously, saya. On the other hand, Saya has become a rather popular appellative amongst Kyrene youth, rich or poor. In youth appropriation, particularly the upper-class variant, it can be approximately defined as bad boy, someone reckless with a pretense to romance. So a common theme is, you see, is, is no love written on his motorcycle. No love written everywhere. It's a very Saya thing to wear, leather motorcycles, in, in, the, in the kind of youth variant, the under-25 under, under variant. Reference to an identification as Saya was central to describing positions of organization and coordination, almost as an honorific, in the both taking of houses and the negotiation with the government and, corp and corporation. Summer, perhaps the most frequently dubbed Saya, plays with the distinction through quixotic aggression in tone and rousing discourses at regular sidewalk reunions. One evening, while cooking a liver dinner on the street with friends, contributing ingredients from their relative respective gardens, he defines himself as Saya, saying, quote, There is an open-minded Saya, and there is a bad Saya. Ahmed interjected, You see, Saya has a lot of meanings. There is a Saya who traveled the whole world and saw everything. Samar follows, quote, an open -minded, He's open-minded and smart. No one can fool him. Karim describes Saya as, quote, Someone who can think well, but has no job. Another resident explained that Saya is related to the actualization of opportunities, a kind of attendant stance. Quote, you lose your home, lost your family, but you take opportunity and guess it well, creating opportunity, using others to make your dream come through, even in a bad way. The Harm City squatters have strongly taken on the notion as a source of strength, reappropriating the link between homelessness and immorality to suggest an improvisational life for those who have lost rights, not forsaken them, and focus on taking them back by any means necessary. Ahmed singled this meaning out with a key proverb, Asaya Adab Mishazaktaf. Bumming it by the book and your shoulders never shook. Using the notion of acting by the book implies a codified etiquette of respect underpinned by an implicit ethical consensus. Ahmed explains, quote, If I called you Saya, it is not because you carry a weapon and drink and walk around attacking people. No, you should have manners. I know everything, but act with politeness. This turn of words removes notions of immorality traditionally associated with placelessness and links an improvisational lifestyle outside of legible geographic sphere to an ethics of the street as code of the opposition. In other words, it transcends the moral rootedness in place of origin with an insistence on a reformula reformulated ethical stance when right to place is lost. 
So you can move around, but you can still be right, basically. Saya can be understood as positionality in discourse that actively embraces the idea of the outlaw. A range of work on the outlaw, as discourse can be picked up and discarded by a range of actors, has emerged from the writings of rhetoricians Sloop and Ono. In introducing the concept, Sloop and Ono recount the Atlanta race riots of 1906 and the depiction of residents in Darktown who physically protected the neighborhood from an attacking white mob. In the observations of witnesses appears a powerful realization that in the eyes of dominant majority, the colored populations could never be identified as good. Rather, they resided in a position of in a position condemned to be seen as immoral outside of prescribed notions of justice, where, quote, it was instead the justice of the outlaw, those who are already living by the code of justice outside of dominant litigation to which the others owe their lives, end quote. Similarly, Hobsbawm extensively detailed the role of the social bandit, historically and globally, as outlaws living on the fringe of society who resort to plundering, but are mythologized as heroic, as a, proto, as a kind of proto-social movement. In all cases, if the game of political judgment is seen to be rigged, the outlaw uses illegality to control the moral terms of the debate. Sloop and Ono define outlaw epistemologies as, quote, loosely shared, loosely shared logics of justice, ideas of right and wrong that are different than, although not necessarily opposed to, a culture's dominant logics of judgment and procedures of litigation. In this sense, we might also understand Squatter's reference to bumming and the comatose as reclaiming popular stigmatization of homelessness or unemployment as a, as a moral threat. Abu Hosni, for example, vividly demonstrates the outlaw stance as central to his sense of masculinity and as a concrete act of taking through improvisation or tactical recklessness beyond any abstract notion of government, human rights, or even God. I wake up at five in the morning, put my trust in God, and fight my way, through, fight my way to bring food and, and a home to my family and make something useful for the country. So do I have rights in this country or don't I? Should I throw my children into the street? Human rights won't bring my rights, and neither with the law. But I know how to fight for them on my own. It is not a shameful thing, nor is it prohibited by God. I won't bully you on the street and ask you to give me money from what's in your pocket. But if this, if this unjust government comes up here to take, me away, to, take my well-being, to take away my well-being, no, I'd rather die and stay a man so my children would walk knowing that their father was, fight, was a fighting man because he took their rights. Behind Slubin Ono's original appeal, there is a broader call for rhetoricians and social sciences scientists to focus on vernacular discourse as a rhetoric of the oppressed. Without reference to Thompson, Slupin Ono's appeal advances study into his final appeal for a comparative inquiry into what the moral is as plebeian discourse. Through an emic understanding of saya and rights as a pastiche of dominant revolutionary language, but on the squatter's own terms explicitly as material endeavor, an etic interpretation of how the Duweka squatters build their case revolves around outlaw discourse recuperating a moral economy in times of dearth. Rice struggle is not fighting for a condition of citizenship, but a material exigency. Here, however, lies the duality of, in the outlaw, and of the saya, as it is regularly used. In being condemned to the outside, and never able to be deemed as good, in, indeed, the lofty appeals to social justice in the, in the, in, of the 2011 revolution itself as a movement are always seen as abstract, irrelevant, or even complicit to the order in which they cannot partake. Ahmed, for example, states, quote, I don't find any social justice. I can't even make my voice heard, end quote. Regarding the referendum, the, the referendum, a constitutional referendum, Karim notes, quote, I won't vote for anybody, not a president or anything, neither Mohamed Morsi or Hosni Mubarak nor anyone. They're all the same, end quote. So if, if you know how divided Cairo is now politically in the last few years, it's remarkable to say that everyone's bad, or at least in, in, in media discourse. Right? No one really, everyone takes a side. It's, it's an extremely polarized environment. You're either part of the Brotherhood or you're with the army. Say everyone is bad is somehow 
very reminiscent of the act of the kind of revolutionaries of the, the, the revolution of Tafur themselves, although they don't identify with them at all. Even the April 6th movement, a core youth activist network of the revolution, is described as, quote, a bunch of spies. Both the Muslim Brotherhood and Abdul Fattah al-Sisi are seen as, quote, all rubbish. They're all working for their own benefits. Underpinning the rejection of any notion that the January 25th was a movement built around notions of rights is frustration with a lack of the full acknowledgement of the degree to which the security apparatus enacts a legal order that predicates their outlier position. When I ask Ahmed if, like revolutionary activists, he sees the police as thugs, al thuggy, he observes, a thug is better than the police. A thug will threaten you for a while, then leave. The police will threaten you forever. In other words, at least the criminal shares the root moral frame behind a more righteous outlaw status. However unethical, or not by the book, a criminal may be, forever evokes a keen awareness of the systemic parameters that define their exclusion and the revolutionary's disconnection from them. Squatting is a resource-intensive practice both in the activities that mitigate precarity, such as supplying electricity and water, and in literally moving people around Cairo. In the day-to-day -day negotiation of bureaucratic norms, of bureaucratic institutions, court dates, bails, transportation to and from downtown meetings with the governorate, collective cash-based objectives and liquidity are essential. Having established the, squ the squatter's metaphorical reference to rights as a good actionable through taking, and predicated upon a perception of violations in the moral economy, how is the status of the Saya as urban outlaw established in practice? If we accept the treatment of rights as a bundle of property relations, then the outlaw's organizing potential revolves around an ability to secure, find, and transfer these goods on behalf of the larger community. Getting by collectively in the city has long been an arena for a wide range of middlemen, fixers, facilitators, and brokers that mediate between the state and the slum. These, quote, people as infrastructure, to quote Dumalik Simon, as well as the communi communicative channels they induce standing on their own as, quote, phatic connectivity, uh, Julia Lechar, can actualize claims on property by mobilizing a wide range of resources and connections. Despite the enormous pressures to map, name, and reduce the spaces that facilitate these channels, a paralegal mode persists, whether, as Asaf Bayat notes, through quiet encroachment in the inside-out developmentalist city, or by insurgency, as James Holson notes, or through market practices that, quote, integrate, refract, and resist and modify neoliberal spaces all at the same time, to quote Simon, Abdul Malik Simon. Sitting over tea in the front steps of Karim or Ahmed's squad at home, day after day, conversation always returns to the fact that every family is simultaneously indebted to one and loaning to another, as dislocation exacerbates irregularity dramatically. It is in language over organizing debt, sustaining collective battles to squat, that references to Saya occurs most frequently. Stories are regularly exchanged, recounting acts of loyalty or disloyalty, asserting their good, al-halwa, or the bad wahish nature, normatively, as what ought to be upheld or frowned upon. In these cases, the word debt, deen, and the wor whether it be food or money, and the word right, hope, are interchangeable. In one story, Karim recounts a recent campout in front of in front of the governorate, and the selfish behavior over distribution of food and cigarettes brought by relatives. Kareem's friend Gamal prompts the moral arc by asking, quote, didn't he write you, meaning debit you, for the shrimps as well? I guess someone had brought shrimps. Kareem responds, referring to a small act of gifting to authorities during the encampment, quote, he even took his right on the soda we brought to the sergeants, end quote. Kareem then refers to some Chinese cigarettes brought by a mother and the same individual's reluctance to share. Quote, you shouldn't play the part of the sneak. As long as, you are, as long as you are going to get this abundance, then you should light up everyone else as well. 
The word for abundance he uses is lamba, which means lamp, which is, a, I think, a fantastic metaphor for a good that doesn't have a zero-sum property, right? So if someone gives you a light bulb, you're not only going to light yourself, right? You light the room. It's, it's very kind of on, on the spot. Considering that time spent protesting in front of the governorate is painfully time not spent creating income, Karim then recounts a dispute over someone claiming an entire chicken brought to the protesters as a central moral lesson. I put three big portions of meat in front of him, and I said, eat. It all ends up in the toilet anyways. But you're too stupid to understand this. That's why I always say, thank hardship for teaching me my friends from my enemy. In this quotidian example, Karim emphasizes his reputation as a moral broker, how resource allocation ought to be conducted, by reminding peers of an inappropriate debting or taking of rights from allies at a time of particular dearth. Soon after, he contrasts this with a tale of just outlaw violence against authorities, beating up a police officer, maltreating his cellmate in, while in a prison, in defense of the weak, and thus being let off because all, because all the officers vouched for him and his righteousness. So he says, to this day, this guy never, forget, never, forget, never forgets me, how I jeopardize for myself. So he, he claims to have beat up a police officer while in jail, and then being let off because it was deemed good by the authorities. The framing of an outlaw as broker of material rights emerges in consideration of the conversation's immediate context of anxious debates over who is reliable to pay funds collected to pay bail for a dozen or so squatters in jail. Kareem's ability to defend against acts of exploitative rights claims by either shaming within the group or physically beating outside the group delineates territories of loyalty while accruing credibility and mitigating, mitigating further debt. In the process, these saya bil adab actions, bumming it by the book actions, reinforce the codification of moral principles, the same the ground arguments of legitimacy against the corporation, repeatedly in the day-to-day, almost as an embodied practice. Within the group, acts perceived as subterfuge, benefiting from the group themselves, abound. One particularly dramatic case involves an incident of an elder and respected group member, Abu Hassan, claiming to have retrieved an original document given to the squatters by the government <coughs> and collected by a rascal upon entrance that, has appeared, that appears to have vanished. As Samar once noted, this resettlement document, a formal request with the government's signature, but not a contract, is a crucial material foothold towards rights. Quote, This document will allow me to go to work without being apprehensive for the house and my children. Without security, how can I work? Resettlement documents, as questionable as they may be, facilitate acquiring water meters on improvised connections, which require naming on deed and simulate a legible single-owner model of property. Summer, another key rights broker, cast doubt on the authenticity of these documents and the 10 Egyptian pounds Abu Hassan collected for family as a company processing fee. He leads the others to a realization that these contracts were most likely forged. In this case, there are two prominent leaders, uh, so Abu Hassan and Summer, proven in their ability to negotiate rights on behalf of others, being differentiated as a saya by the book and a saya who is not. Summer is careful to not lay too much blame on Abu Hassan, while being clear that he will not be associated after declaring his happiness to not be in charge, insisting that everyone work by their own mind, he directly states, quote, There was no document in the first place. Don't be stupid. If a document like this went missing, all hell would break loose. It was a bluff to get money by the housing office. If it wasn't a bluff, you would have received an official report about it. I don't know where Abu Hassan's head is leading him. I swear to you, Kareem, even Sami Sawiris can't come up with this document. Samar also appeals to tangible, clear and quantifiable proof when brushing aside imminent eviction as a reason to follow Abu Hassan's forged letter. Quote, This won't happen overnight. It will take time to deploy forces. You need studies, statistics, and shit. End quote. He repeatedly affirms this by asserting that if any document or order comes, it must be through their volunteer lawyers. Quote, Frankly, when people see a lawyer, they trust him and run behind him. 
But if someone like us started taking the shots, he would get screwed. And people would never stop talking about him. So why suffer? The role of the broker here is to acknowledge the suitable domains of capacity, asserting that anything official must be accredited, must be accredited by an official ally, and taking distributive action accordingly. Summer goes on to contrast this with the complete lack of clarity of Abu Hassan's plan to ask for money, different amounts from different families, without a timeline or plan for producing rights. He gives two examples of how brokering loans the name of rights ought to occur. First, he tells a story of loaning to others to secure a home. Let's say Kareem wanted a pound for me. I will ask him, why do you want it? He will say, I want to demolish this wall. I might forgive you if you tried and failed. If you tried and broke one brick of this wall and then the government stopped you from continuing, then you've earned the pound. But if you ask for a pound, and then when I ask you why, why you say you don't need to know, then I will ruin you. Timeless, timeliness, clarity of purpose, communication, and honesty of intent are all emphasized as moral for the debtor, and even cause for forgiveness of debt. In describing how he himself acquires larger loans for only the most essential group initiatives, such as paying bails, similar expectations hold, but to a degree of regularity and clarity that matches their official source, in this case, a government bank. So Summer claims to have a source through his sister at a government bank to which he's able to get large amounts of money to bail out the group. But it, it's the, the, the rules of getting this money and repaying it are so strict that it, it's reserved for the most special occasions. Quote, the day he desires repayment, I'll give him the world. He's able to come out covering his tracks regarding the safe only that very instant. He arranges the paperwork with the bank accordingly. If the money is his, he is the proper one. If it were his private money, I would tell him in a month and keep him ringing for six. The practice of understanding and meeting the expectations of formal norms, even for illegal ends, translates the moral foundations for a recognition of a dominant operative logic, a bank's. Central to scholarship on the broker, but often underemphasized, is the ability to not only mediate dominant norms of the state, but to actually induce legal changes in them. Scholars focused on land tenure reg regularization practices have emphasized the utility of a de facto ownership, brought on by emphasizing a, quote, perception of legality, over de jure ownership, towards piecemeal assembly of the legal rights that constitute ownership. A striking example of the importance of perceptions to ownership is given by Simone, depicting central Phnom Penh residents reframing the underground economy of, of their building as part of the creative industry, tipping the hat to international norms for land protection to secure government recognition. Dharma Kumar has similarly emphasized the importance of, quote, land controllers, somewhere between owner and broker, incrementally gathering rights over bureaucratic time specifically. Same time, Soli Benjamin notes the strategic emphasis on playing with the conventions of government as a law in process, rather than emphasizing the law itself. Arranging material subcomponents behind rights between lawyers, bank employees, and the squatter community, whether it be the documentation, documentation of the resettlement or loans, effectively charts a path towards further mobilizing around these conventions. So just to conclude, in Harm City, brokering does frame itself in opposition to dominant legal systems of exchange. But this is not an end in and of itself. Resonance, resonance with outlaw discourse centers the state's politics and moral judgment and the form of moral appeal necessary to assert a legitimate stance in daily confrontations. As Sloop and Ono note, the power of, the out, the power of outlaw discourse and its explicit navigation of norms, the game that deems one good or bad, is that, quote, one is placed in a position of having to recognize momentarily the contingency of one's own judgment and also of one's logic of judgment compare it to another, and ultimately either to renew or to transform one's values and judgments. Treating outlaw discourse as one guise of broker practices opens a conceptual space where survival goes beyond material trafficking and transaction to also incorporate the active translation of logics of moral judgment. 
This can be seen as the very first step towards de facto perceptions of legality. In Harm City, this translation is visible through the use of rights language as the very object of trafficking and transaction, according to proverbial by-the-book norms. In the process, the effective moral economy behind squatting itself is recursively embodied and reconstituted. In order to understand the link between politics of the squatter and of the state, I have shown how literature on historical popular resistance, legal geography, rhetoric studies, and urban anthropology come together in sometimes underexplored ways. More broadly, I have sought to challenge the so-called formal and informal divide by showing an emic contextual recognition of the implications behind this divide and people's focus on the front lines of it. So, despite personal assurances by Rascom's management that the Wicca squatters would be evicted come CC's uh, confirmation as president, uh, seven months since, this, since his election, 153 squatters remain in defined attendance. So they continue uh, holding their piece of ground.